0: Remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from Matthew uh, 28. Listen carefully to God's gospel. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen. As He said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And indeed, He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, and ran to bring his disciples' word. As far as the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing to us the good news in Scripture, and for confirming it to us by your Spirit living in us help us to grow in our faith and in our joy as we meditate on the resurrection story we ask this in jesus name amen please be seated I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 28. We're going to be in Matthew 28 this week and next week as we consider the, this resurrection chapter in Matthew's Gospel. And I once again encourage you to have your Bible with you at church. I preach from the Bible, and I try to, as often as I can, stick your nose back into the Bible, and it's good if you can have a Bible open in your lap so that you can make sure that what I'm saying is right and and also so you can get to know your Bible and sometimes we flip around in it and uh, you can learn where things are and think of the sermons as in part a Bible study. In the third century, a prominent pastor in the northern part of Africa whose name was Cyprian was about to die. He was actually the Bishop of Carthage. And as he neared his death, he wrote a letter to a friend named Donatus. And in this letter, he wrote the following words. It is a a bad world, Donatus. An incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned the secret of life. They have found a joy that is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians. And I am one of them. Do you agree with Cyprian in his letter here? is your Christian joy a thousand times better than any other pleasure that the world offers. On Good Friday, we looked at Paul's Christ hymn in Philippians 2. And at the end of the Carmen Christi, as it's called, we saw where Paul says that one day, every knee of every person will bow to King Jesus. And every tongue will bow of every person will confess that Jesus is the Lord. There's a coming day when every unbeliever and every believer will bow the knee to Jesus and acknowledge Him as Lord and King. The difference is that unbelievers will be full of fear as they do it, while believers will be full of both fear and joy. Non-Christians, when they stand before the resurrected King Jesus on Judgment Day, will experience fear only. Not a good kind of fear. Christians, on the other hand, will experience both fear, appropriate fear of God, and joy. A fear that is undergirded by joy on that great day. And we see a foretaste of this future reality in our Gospel reading from Matthew 28. In verse 4, it says that the guards shook in fear at the sight of God's angelic messenger. There was no joy in these Roman soldiers, only paralyzing fear. The text says that they were so afraid that they became like Dead men. They were shaking in their combat boots. Their combat sandals, whatever they wore. But notice how the women at the tomb respond to the angel and his message differently. Skip down to verse 8. It says, so they, that's the, that is the two women, the two Marys from verse 1, they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to bring his disciples Word, the word that the angels sent them to share. You see, for believers, for Christians, the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead is a source of great joy. And there is no joy, no true joy, no lasting joy apart from this knowledge, this news. We're going to walk through the first eight verses of Matthew 28, and then we'll end with some reflections on Christian joy, the kind of joy that belongs only to those who are united to the resurrected Christ by faith. So look with me me at the first half of verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, stop there, the the first day of the week of course is sunday sunday is dawning but this was not just it was not the dawning of just any sunday of any week this was not just a new day any new day of any new week this first easter sunday was the dawning of a new age it was the inauguration of a new era the resurrection of jesus was the first day of a new world order. Everything changed on this day. All of world history hinges on this first resurrection Sunday. Everything before the resurrection of Jesus took place in the old creation. Everything after the resurrection of Jesus takes place in the inaugurated new creation. Under the personal rule Reign of the sovereign and gracious and and risen Lord Jesus Christ. It's also significant that the resurrection happened on a Sunday, which is the day after the Sabbath, the text says. How interesting that God didn't select the Sabbath as the resurrection day, He didn't arrange history so that Jesus rose on the Sabbath day. Instead, He chose the next day, the eighth day, to be the new holy day, we might call it. He chose Sunday to be the day we worship His Son. Perhaps He chose a new day because a new era was breaking into the world. A permanent cavity was torn in the cosmos on this eighth day. The resurrection of Jesus created an eternal eighth day of rest and rejoicing. An eternal Sabbath, if you will, for all those who rest and rejoice in Christ. The day was Sunday. And the two people were the two faithful Marys. Look at the rest of verse 1. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now we know who Mary Magdalene is. Jesus had cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene. And after that, she followed Jesus and it says she supported His ministry. She apparently was of some wealth. The other Mary is the mother of Jesus. There's a little bit of debate about that, but it seems pretty certain to me that this is the mother of Jesus when you compare the rest of Matthew and the other Gospels. Both of these Marys were there on Friday for the burial. And they've returned at sunup after the Sabbath on Sunday morning for the surprise of their lives, right? And it's very significant that it was two women who first witnessed the empty tomb and the risen Christ. In the ancient world, women were so marginalized that their testimony was not valid in the court of law. So if the Gospel writers were making up the resurrection story, they surely would not have made up a story in which the key witnesses are women. That's not how you would fabricate something that you're trying to to convince people of if it's not true. In fact, all four Gospels mention the women at the tomb. If they were, in fact, fabricating a story, this is not at all how it would look. It's not how they would have done it. And what did these women see when they got to the tomb? In the following verses, Matthew enables us to see through the eyes of these two Marys so that we see what they saw as they arrived at the tomb. We experience the scene through their eyes. They are eyewitnesses, and now we get to become eyewitnesses in a sense. Look at verses 2 and 3. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. There's a couple humorous things in this passage. One of them is that the angel sits down. You know, like he's resting on the stone and and we're told this. The focus in these verses falls on the angel. Which verse 2 says is an angel of the Lord. And the result of this angel's appearance and his actions is an earthquake. A great earthquake, Matthew says. And Matthew draws attention to the angel's awesome appearance. The text says that the angel looked as bright as Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain earlier in the Gospel. His clothing as white as snow and His appearance was like lightning. That's used of both Jesus on the mountain and the angel here. Matthew also draws attention to the angel's awesome actions. The text says that the angel descended from heaven to earth. He rolled back the stone and then he sat victoriously on the stone that he had just moved. So the angel's awesome appearance and awesome actions awe-inspiring appearance and actions not only make the earth quake, they also make the guards quake. Verse 4 says, And the guards shook for fear of Him, and they became like dead men. Here's another humorous place. Jesus was supposed to be dead in the tomb. Jesus is the dead man. Really, the only dead men are those guards who are paralyzed with fear. Jesus is alive, but these men, these guards, need to be rejuvenated. But the angel doesn't revitalize these faithless dead men. In fact, he doesn't even acknowledge them. He's only there to talk to the faithful women. He's there to revive their faith. Psalm 30, verse 5 Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. These women had been weeping, no doubt, for the last 39 hours, but joy comes on Easter morning. And the angel's message to these two women is threefold Fear not, come and see and then go and tell. In verse 5 the message is fear not. In verse 6 come and see. Verse 7 go and tell. In the Bible every time a human encounters an angel, nearly every time, I think he or she fears. That's why in nearly every encounter with an angel, the angel first has to say to the human, fear not. Don't be afraid the angel doesn't say that you would keep shaking in your boots perhaps God is here to judge perhaps his wrath is on its way here however the angel has good news he has the gospel to announce to these women so he starts with the word of comfort and encouragement not judgment In verse 5 Matthew brings it back to the two Marys he didn't stay long on the on the two guards And one of the things we need to notice is that these two women are handling the appearance of the angel far better than the men are. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He is risen. As He said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. We're not given any details about the resurrection event itself, the actual resurrection of Jesus when it was happening, when He was coming to life. We're not told that Jesus' body began to glow, shine like the angel was shining or anything like that. It doesn't say that the shroud around His body burst apart. We get no details about how Jesus might have stood up and stretched before walking through the stone that attempted to keep him inside in vain. Instead, the resurrection story we have is a story of the clear, visible, traceable consequences of the resurrection of Jesus. We get to see the effects of the resurrection, and the first effect is the empty tomb. And we we need to pay attention to a few details here. First... Note that the stone is not, it it was not rolled away so that Jesus could come out. Jesus got out on his own before the angel rolled the stone away. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out, at least it doesn't say that explicitly, but to let the women in. That's what we see in the text. We don't know how Jesus escaped. Matthew doesn't tell us, nor do the other Gospels. Matthew can't show us the indescribable resurrection of Jesus, but he does let us in, along with the two Marys, to see the empty tomb. He opens the tomb. He rolls the stone away so that we can see. And with these women, we see that the Jesus who was crucified is no longer dead. The Christ that I preach to you every Sunday is the crucified Christ. However, the Christ who was crucified is not in the tomb anymore. He's not still there. Verse 6 says, For he is risen. There's one more detail to note in verse 6 the angel's invitation to come and see is an invitation to consider the evidence. Do your research. The angel doesn't say the stone may be rolled away, but there's no need to check inside the tomb. Just take it on faith. He actually invites us, Mary, the Marys and us, to come and see. To confirm the truth. The angel also doesn't say, as many liberal Christians say, there's no need to look inside the tomb or anywhere else for Jesus because He's been spiritually raised. Don't look for Him in the tomb. Look for Him in your heart. Look for Him anywhere and everywhere in nature. No, that's not the sort of resurrection that Matthew is recounting. The two Marys will see Jesus. They will touch Jesus. They will behold Him in the flesh by holding on to His flesh in real time, in a real place. Our resurrected Lord is a tangible Lord. By going with the women into the tomb, we are to open our eyes and our ears and our minds to the truth. As they did. Finally let's look at verses 7 and 8. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to bring his disciples word. The, the ladies are given a great commission as it were in verse 7. Verse 7. And then off they go in verse 8 to tell the others. They're given a command and they obey it promptly. And we can't miss how Matthew records their mixed emotions of fear and great joy. Notice the word great goes before the word joy, not before the word fear. They didn't have great fear and some joy, they had some fear and great joy. Whatever fear they experienced, whatever nature this fear was, and who wouldn't experience a little bit of fear in a situation like this, whatever fear they had, it was their great joy that dominated them, that pushed them out, that drove them to take the next step in their Christian journey. They took it by joy, not by fear. This is not the only place in Scripture where fear and joy come together. In fact, in one place, the Bible commands us to have both joy and fear at the same time. So this is not a contradiction. Psalm 2, verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. Have joy with trembling. And he goes on to say, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. There's a proper fear of God that can exist alongside our joy, our resurrection joy. And that, to some extent, perhaps, is what these women were doing. We don't know the full nature of their fear. But they were rejoicing with trembling, with fear and great joy, it says. These, mo- these emotions go together in Scripture because they sometimes go together in real life. Anyone who's been married, for example, knows the wedding day is one of some fear mixed with great joy. The source of these women's joy is the resurrection of Jesus From the dead. You see, historically, joy is the first, the the very first fruit of the Spirit. Historically speaking, joy is the very first fruit of the Spirit that the resurrection produces. All the fruits of the Spirit flow from our resurrected Lord. Love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these are rooted and flow out of the resurrection of Jesus. It's only possible to have Christian joy because Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, it's always possible for believers to be filled with Christian joy. So it's only possible to have true joy, Christian joy, because of the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, it's possible to have true Christian joy all the time. It's easy for us to understand why these two Marys were so filled with joy. With great joy. The darkness that had flooded their hearts for three days starting on Good Friday, was being driven out by the light of the glory of the risen Christ. Their shattered hopes were being put back together. Their disappointment was being undone. The impossible had happened. The only imaginable response to the resurrection of Jesus is resurrection joy. So it's easy for us to see they had sowed seeds, uh, they had sown in tears, but now they're reaping with shouts of joy. Of course, if Matthew had told us that these two Marys were somehow not filled with great joy, if, if he had told us that these Marys were struggling to find their joy, we would wonder what was wrong with them, Right? We might wonder if they were true Christians, how could they be experiencing anything other than great joy at a time like this? And yet we who live on the same side of the resurrection as these two Marys, often find ourselves lacking in resurrection joy. If Jesus really is alive, how could we ever struggle to find our Christian joy, we might ask? How is it that the good news so easily becomes old news to us? How is it that the resurrection of King Jesus has so little to do with our outlook on life on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis? Is there anything in your life That should have a greater effect on you, on your thoughts, on your emotions than the resurrection of Jesus. Think of something that should dominate you more. If there's anything going on in your career that is more important than the fact that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, then your priorities are misaligned. What has happened to you or not happened to you that is more significant than that one Greek verb that is translated in our English Bibles as He is risen. He is risen. Resurrection joy may have come easy for the two Marys on Easter morning, but in Scripture, Christians, believers, are commanded exhorted to have joy even when it doesn't come easy. Joy is a biblical requirement. It's not an option. It's not just something that we experience in passing when it happens to land on us. It's a command, not a suggestion. It's a fruit that we cultivate. Good fruit must be Cultivated, it doesn't just happen. Some of you know that very well, right? Psalm sixty-eight, three: The righteous shall rejoice and be glad before God. Yes, the righteous shall rejoice exceedingly. Philippians three, one: Rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. First Thessalonians five, sixteen. Be joyful always. That's a command. Not sometimes, but always. Christian joy is a virtue that every spirit-filled Christian can have and must have. Joy is like gratitude in that sense. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that Christians are supposed to give thanks in every circumstance and in the same passage... Be joyful all the time. He puts these together, actually. There's no situation in which it is okay not to be full of gratitude and joy. That's convicting. It's never okay to grumble and fuss instead of giving thanks. In the same way, it's never okay to wallow in self-pity instead of having Christian joy Paul's very clear in 1st Thessalonians 5:16 and 18 Be joyful always and everything give thanks Now this doesn't mean that you're supposed to pretend that every situation that God puts you in is fun or the most desirable Okay that, that's not true and we're not supposed to pretend like it is true The cross was not fun for Jesus. It was not the most desirable thing in one sense. However, and think about this, Jesus never lost His joy. Ever. Even when He was on the cross. Even when He was in agony. Even when He was being judged by the Father. Hebrews 12.2 says explicitly that Jesus endured the cross for what? For the joy that was set before him. It's really great that we actually have a scripture to tell us that Jesus was joyful even on the cross. It might be hard for us to believe. Perhaps then we could allow Jesus to lose his joy. No, he did not. Jesus had joy even as he bore your sins. He bore your sins for the joy set before him. Never losing his joy as God poured out his anger that you deserved, that I deserved, on his son. And why? How could he do this? Because his joy was never based on his circumstances, on what was going on in his life, on his vocation on whether he found fulfillment in his calling as a carpenter or something like that. Jesus found his joy in doing the will of his Father. Is that where you find your joy? You can be filled with the same joy that characterized Jesus because you have the same spirit that God poured out on Jesus at His baptism. And you can have this same joy, this Spirit-filled Christian resurrection joy, even as you carry your cross, the cross that Jesus has given you to bear. How do you do this? How is this possible? That same verse from Hebrews 12.2 tells you how. Listen as I read all of Hebrews 12.2. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. That's how you maintain your Christian joy. Looking to Jesus, who bore his cross with joy. If you're not looking to Jesus, if you're looking somewhere else, there will be no joy. There will be fleeting happiness, perhaps, but there will be no lasting joy. Instead of looking for the right circumstances, the right life, the right outcome, the right family situation, the right job, instead of looking for anything like that to bring you joy, look to Jesus and to Jesus alone. To bring you joy. Now, again, looking to Jesus won't fix all your problems. It won't make all your pain and sadness go away. At least not in this life. And and Jesus never promises that. He never offers that in this life. God's plan for your life may be not to remove a hardship that you're enduring in your time. However, when you fix your eyes on the resurrected Jesus, instead of on your circumstances, the Holy Spirit will give you a joy that Christ had, a joy that overshadows and redefines, recontextualizes the pains of life in this fallen world, and we all have them. You can know that your Father will keep His promises to you as He kept His promises to Jesus because you're united to Jesus. You can believe unreservedly that He will do what is best for you. You can rely on His faithfulness and His wisdom. Your God is trustworthy even in the shadow of death. Even when you're in the valley. He was faithful to Jesus He will be faithful to you. You can bear your cross knowing that there is a very good reason why. A wise reason that your loving Father has taken you down this road and not taken from you what you would like Him to take from you. Your Father loves you and you can bear your cross. You can bear your sorrow, your sadness, your suffering, Your disappointments, your losses, your depression, your fatigue, your fears, your weaknesses, your doubts, even your regrets. You can bear all of this faithfully and you can do it for the resurrection joy that has been set before you. The power of Christ's resurrection is the power to take up your cross and bear it faithfully with great joy. You can do all things through Christ who gives you resurrection strength. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, you can have resurrection joy. Because Christ is alive, you can live in the joy of the Lord. Because Jesus has conquered death, you can put to death the sin that strangles your joy. Because Jesus rose from the dead, just as He said He would do, You can trust Him to keep all of His promises, including to meet the pain in your heart with resurrection joy. Because Jesus rose from the dead as He said He would, you can trust Him to raise you up from the dead on the last day. He kept His Word then and He will keep His Word again. The resurrection power that rescued you from sin, from bondage to sin, from hell, from God's judgment can also rescue you from your anger and your despair and your cynicism and your selfishness and your self-pity. Christ's resurrection power can produce resurrection joy in any believer, at any time, in any situation. So in closing, I exhort you with Paul's exhortation from Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. God, help us to be joyful always. To live in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. To live in the hope of our resurrection from the dead someday. We need your help to do this because we do not do it faithfully. We want to do it more faithfully. We want to be filled with the joy of the Lord more. Holy Spirit, work in us the fruit of joy. In Jesus' name, amen.